alluded to earlier, I'm not the pastor here, so if you're visiting with us and you don't like it, just come back next week. And then if you really don't like it, you can leave. Um, but don't base the preaching on this church um, on this one example from a man who's not his pastor. So anyway, uh, would you pray with me before we open God's Word? We ask this morning that you would, again, uh, not really come into our midst so much as open our awareness that you are already in our midst. Lord, you were here before we got here this morning. You were awake while we were sleeping last night. Lord, you are informed beyond what we can comprehend. You know all. Lord, you created all. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You stand out, outside of time. Lord, impossible is not a boundary for you. It is a descriptor we have for things that are normal for you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do a supernatural work that no man can do in and of himself. Would you change human hearts from rocks of stone to hearts of flesh that beat for your will and do your work in the world? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So second, first uh, Peter, excuse me, chapter two, verses 13 through 25 is our text. And I want to open this sermon, if I can somehow open this document, with a question. Wait a minute, Matthew, you told me what to do here. I got it. Nope, I don't. Now I got it. Thanks. Thanks for your help, brother. All right. Um, so I want to open this morning's uh, sermon with a question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? It's a pretty simple question, one we've probably all asked ourselves at some point. But as simple as that question is to ask, it is not so easy to answer. So for starters, most of us would agree that we do what we do because of what we think that will do for us, right? So we have some goal in mind, some end, some telos. You may, that's uh, kind of philosophical language, but you may be familiar with that. And so we act in a manner that we think is congruent with that goal. But this explanation doesn't completely answer our question. To do that, we need to go a little bit deeper from the level of desire to the level of identity. So I don't have time to fully unpack this this morning, but the Bible would argue that who we are and who we see ourselves to be, and perhaps even more importantly, who we want ourselves to be, is what directs and dictates our desires, and then those desires drive and direct our actions. To say it simply, we do what we do because of who we are. But again, things get a bit tricky here, because as humans, and especially as Christians, we're a bit of a mixed bag, right? So we're dealing with more than one self. We have more than one identity, and therefore, we have more than one set of desires. On the one hand, if we are in Christ, we have this new heart. We have new desires. They're desires to glorify God. They're to love and serve others. But on the other hand, if you're anything like me, we're still dealing with that old dead man, what Paul would call the flesh. We all have skeletons in the closet, but as Christians, we carry corpses in our souls. And this false self, though it's been uh, theologically rendered dead, often feels anything but. It often feels, again, if you're like me, very much alive. And it carries with it desires that glorify the man or the woman in the mirror instead of the man hanging on the cross. 
The Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. He writes this in verse 17, that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these, these competing and conflicting desires are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to. If you know your Bible, you know my head there goes to Romans chapter 7. Paul, right, he sounds like a schizophrenic. He's like, the things I want to do, I can't seem to do them. And the things I don't want to do, I, I inevitably continue to do them. And so there's this battle, this tug of war, this line of scrimmage, goal line stand between the flesh and the spirit at work all the time in the heart and soul of the believer. And so why we do what we do is not always so clear cut. Our desires flow from multiple sources and our behaviors compete for conflicting outcomes. Scholars refer this relationship between who we are and what we do. They call it identity and calling. Identity and calling goes together like salt and pepper, peanut butter, and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly is really good, by the way. Unless you like grape, and then it's disgusting. <laughs> but Peter, the author of our text, this letter here, he knows this full well. That's why he's constantly toggling back and forth between who we are and what we do. And so Peter's pattern so far in this letter has been to remind his audience of who they are, specifically who they are in Christ. And then he calls them, or more specifically, he commands them, and he does command them, as to what they're to do based on this identity of who they are in Jesus. And so in just the first 35 verses, I counted them, it's not hard math, just the first 35 verses, before we get to our text here, chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says this about who his listeners are. He says they are elect exiles and sojourners. He says they have been saved. So past tense, this event occurred. Now you stand in grace and you stand at peace with the God of the universe. He says they are held in grace, this tension that's constantly holding them. He says they are children of God. They're believers in God. They have been born again. They're obedient children who have a pure heart or a heart that has been made pure. He says they're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Then he calls them the people of God and says they are recipients of God's mercy. And if you're a believer in here this morning, that is just as true of you today as it was to this audience some two millennia ago. That is true of you this morning, Josh. Caleb, that's true of you. Kate, that is true of you. Matthew, Lance, that is true of you. Sisters, well, I get to my wife, but (laughs) anyway, you guys edify one another. (laughs) But that is true of you if you're a believer here this morning. And despite how you may feel, I walked in here feeling very much the hypocrite this morning for a bunch of reasons that go against the flesh, or go against the spirit, and I'm living out of the flesh. That is still, regardless, and nonetheless, true of you if you are in Jesus Christ. And every one of those scriptures speaks to our identity. This is who we are in Christ. And as Peter affirms his readers of their identity, he kind of sprinkles in their calling. And so he says things like this in 1 Peter 1, 13-15. Therefore, so verses 1-12 through is all identity. Verse 13, therefore, out of this identity, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, there's another identity statement. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? That person is dead, but is he who called you is holy, so be holy in all of your conduct. Identity, you're God's people, you're obedient children. Calling, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. 
Don't be conformed. Set yourselves apart. Be holy as your Father is holy. This is a little bit later. Chapter 1, verse 22. Peter's just said, hey, your hearts have been made pure. You've been renewed. You have a new pulse, you could say. Then he says this. He says, love one another earnestly from this pure heart. So identity, new heart, new person. Calling is you should live new lives and ones that look radically different from your former life in the flesh. One more example. This is from 2, 1 through 2. Chapter 2, 1 through 2. Peter's just told his readers, hey, you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. Then he says this, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So again, identity, you have this, uh, you've been born again, right? You're a new man, you're a new woman, a new creation in Christ. Calling is to put away the behaviors of your former life and to crave the life source that is your new life. It's the Word of God. So Peter is constantly telling his readers who they are and how they're to live. And by the time we get to our text here in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter is addressing what I'm calling Christian public policy. It's kind of a timely uh, topic, if you will, Christian public policy. And so Peter has just kind of rolled out this new perspective on the identity of the believer. He said they're a holy nation and a royal priesthood. So they're citizens of another kingdom... And they're subjects and servants of another king. Which begs the question, how do we live in the here and now? And so last week, Tyler tackled that question as it pertains to Gentiles or those outside of the faith. Meaning they don't submit to God as their father. They don't relate to Jesus as their Lord. And starting here in verse 13, Peter addresses a few other populations and how the Christians should relate to them. So Peter gives his audience four specific commands here could say these are four callings and how to live out of this newfound position of power and freedom in Jesus Christ. And these are going to serve as our four points this morning. Uh, they're not on your worship guide. I checked. So if you want to write these down, I'd encourage it. If you don't want to, I'd still encourage it. So first point is this. Peter uh, says that as God's people, they are free to love the family of God. They're free to love the family of God. Second, he says they are free to fear God. Free to fear God. Third, he says we are free to serve and submit. Free to serve and submit. And lastly, he says we are free to suffer well. We'll end on a high note. Free to suffer well. Welcome to church. So there are, there are multiple commands and callings in our text, but the bulkhead of these are found in verse 17. Peter writes this in verse 17. Doesn't mix any words. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Just like that. You may have noticed that Peter repeats himself here. He uses the word honor twice. He actually bookends these four commands with honor everyone and honor the emperor. Which seems a bit confusing, at least it did to me. I'm like, if you said honor everyone, why do you need to say honor the emperor? That emperor would be and should be included in everyone. right? But rather than thinking of these four statements as kind of four clauses standing shoulder to shoulder... They're better understood when we see the command to honor everyone as this kind of overarching umbrella as to how we're to treat everyone. And then the three following commands to love the brother, to fear God and honor the emperor, kind of subcategories as how we do those. They're how we carry out this imperative of honoring everyone. So how do we honor everyone? Well, or how do, we, uh, love the, how do we honor the brotherhood? We love them. How do we honor God? We fear Him. How do we honor the emperor? We do just that. 
we honor him. And so what does this mean exactly and how do we carry these out? And this is where we get our four points from this morning. You may have noticed there's three subcategories and I've got four points. And that's because the last uh, command to honor the emperor, we're going to kind of subdivide into two subcategories. Okay, so you got one, three, and then two hanging off this one down here if you're like a visual person. Is this tra- are you tracking with me? Have I lost you? Okay, so there's two subcategories off of honor the emperor, and that's because Peter's going to, in verse 18, touch on this other relationship that is founded on authority and submission, and that's one of uh, a servant and a master. Okay, he's going to parallel this relationship between a citizen and their authority and a servant and a master. Are you with me? Okay, we're strapping on the tanks, we're taking the plunge. All right, so first Peter says this, he says, love the brotherhood. The word for love there, and if you've been around church a while, this is probably going to sound kind of redundant, but it's this word agapo. Agapo. It's not agape. I checked. I listened to the Blue Letter Bible guy like six times. He's like, agapo. Okay? But it means this. Listen. It means to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, and to love dearly. A helpful way to understand this is actually to equate it to the New Testament idea of hospitality. So this is not love in the emotional sense. It is love in the tangible sense. This command is not based on a feeling we possess. It is based on actions that we carry out. Simply put, we love our brother and our sister by physically and tangibly caring for them. To welcome and entertain, and therefore love dearly, are not words of emotion. They are words of action. So we don't love our brother and sister by having the warm fuzzies in our hearts, but by opening our door and by setting a place at the table. Peter's teaching us that biblical love is not so much a feeling as it is a verb. So a few months ago, uh, my wife and I were at a wedding. And if you're at a, I love weddings. I love them. If they're good, if they're like biblically rich and gospel-centered, I love a good wedding. I'm kind of a sappy romantic at heart. And so I just love this ideal of, especially as a married man, I just, like it gives me the warm fuzzies for my wife. And I just want to, you know, snuggle up and tell her I love her and write her love notes and stuff. And that's just Don't abuse that information, (laughs) but that's just who I am, and I love a good wedding, and this pastor did a good job, but he said this thing at this wedding, he said this line, and I actually set a reminder, every three days, this line goes off on my phone to remind me of this, it stuck with me so much, he said this, he said we love those for whom, with whom, and to whom we do loving actions, we love those for whom, with whom, and to whom we do loving actions. He went on to say to the bride and groom something to the effect of your love will carry you to the degree that you continue to carry out the loving actions that curated that love to begin with. Your love will carry you to the degree that you continue to carry out the loving actions that curated that love to begin with. And while that may sound kind of unromantic and even a bit mechanical, that is biblical love. That is biblically based, action-oriented, nitty-gritty, give you the shirt off my back and the food off my table, love. And so how do we love the brother and the sister? How do we love the family of God? We love as Jesus commanded us, and we love as Jesus loved himself. We wash each other's feet. We willingly serve one another, and we give to any as they have need. And in this way, we will carry out in our community the love that Christ showed for us on the cross. Second command here, and our second point is that we are free to fear God. I actually want to pull in the third commandment here and compare these two side by side, which is to fear God and honor the emperor. And notice the distinction here. 
That, that, that Peter doesn't say, honor God and honor the emperor. Because he could have rightly said, you should honor God and you should honor, uh, honor the emperor. Peter distinguishes. He says, fear God and honor the emperor. And both the verbiage and the order are important here. So first, Peter calls us to fear God. The word here in Greek means to fear or revere or to treat with a deferential obedience. It's the idea of, recognize a power, of recognizing a power and authority that is greater than your own, and in this case is ultimate. He then says to honor the emperor. The word there conveys the idea of ascribing to something the value and respect that it's due. And what Peter is doing here is he's attaching the honor due the emperor to his office rather than his person. He's saying the honor that is due this emperor, this, this special honor is due to the office of the emperor, not the being possessing the office to begin with. And so we should honor and respect those in authority. And specifically here are civil, civil leaders. But at the end of the day, the emperor or the president or the parliament or the mayor, they are people just like we are. They have been made from dust and they have been made by God. As the saying goes, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like I do and just like you do. But this is not so with God, is it? God has not been made by human hands. He is and He makes and He creates, as the expression goes, ex nihilo, out of nothing. So God does not need a bunch of Legos laying on the floor to build a city. He just speaks and it happens. God is not bound by space or time. He stands outside of them. He holds them in His hands. God is radically free. So people, mayors, civil leaders, presidents, we make, information, or we make decisions on the information we have at the time that we have it. God sees the beginning from the end. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And God is not bound by anyone or anything. The psalmist says He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which is kind of Old Testament poetic language to say that God lacks nothing and He needs nothing. God did not create us because He was bored. He is completely sufficient in the perfection of His being. And so while the emperor or president or government may impose on our rights, they may jack up our taxes, they could jail us, they could even kill us, they will all one day answer to God and God alone, free of title and free of resume. And just, just as Jesus reminded Pilate, Peter is reminding his listeners and he's reminding us that our leaders are in office only because the God of the universe has ordained it. And so we honor our leaders, corrupt as they may be. And it's easy to play armchair president and just go, if I was, you know, I would, we're all fallen. We would all have our own share of mistakes, which means we should pray for our leaders. We should wish them well and we should be as quick to praise their victories as we are to criticize their failures. But they are not God. And as Christians who have been born again and given a new identity in Christ, we are called to live lives worthy of our calling and consistent with our identity. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill only the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so we honor our leaders, but we fear God and we fear him alone. Which brings us to our third question. How do we honor the emperor? I want to circle back to verse 13, the starting verse of this text this morning. And chronologically speaking, verse 13 uh, actually contains the first command in this text. Peter says this in verse 13. He says, be subject to every human institution. There's the command to be subject. And he goes on to direct that command 
towards citizens and how they relate to governments, emperors, so on and so forth. In our case, it would be you know, everybody up the, the ladder for us civilly, congressmen, presidents, mayors, and all of that. So this command here, though, to be subject is found twice in our text. I kind of alluded to, alluded to it at the beginning, but we see it here in verse 13. We see it later in verse 18. Verse 18 will be the last point, but I want to focus here on verse 13 for just a minute. And what I want us to see is that this command here to be subject to these authorities is actually the primary way that Peter intends for us to fulfill his command to honor the emperor to begin with in verse 17. Does that make sense? Okay, so the way that we honor the emperor is by being subject to him in verse 13. You with me? Okay, all right. A couple of you are with me. (laughs) Okay. But the word here, to be subject, is this Greek word, uh, hupotasso. Hupotasso, okay? And while it's translated be subject in the ESV and maybe some other translations might have it a little bit differently, I think a better and more literal translation is actually to say subject yourselves, which better emphasizes the fact that this is a willful submission on behalf of the believer, right? To subject yourself means that you are actually not the one that you are subjecting yourself to. Otherwise, you would not have to subject yourself because you would be subject to them either by law or by nature. But as Peter says in verse 16, we are free people, which means we are the subject of no one. And so in your Bible, verse 16 probably says live as free people. It might say act as free people. In the Greek, live and act are kind of placeholders. A more literal, again, translation is just as free people, which drives home the fact that as Christians, freedom is not something we are practicing or rehearsing. We are not dressing up here for anybody. Freedom is who we are in Jesus Christ. Christians are and ought to be the freest people in the world. Which begs the question, if we are free, why would we willingly subject ourselves to earthly institutions that once tried to enslave and oppress us and are probably not primarily concerned with carrying out the will of God in the world? And the answer, according to Peter, is this. That while we are free from human authority, we are now slaves to God. And as slaves, you don't carry out your own plans. You don't even make your own plans as a slave. You carry out the plans of your master. That's why, Peter appeals, why Peter's appeal to subject yourselves in verse 13 is immediately attached to this phrase, for the Lord's sake. That's why he reminds us in verse 16 as our, of our identity as servants of God. Peter is essentially saying, as free people, you are now slaves to God. Got to love the paradox there. But your freedom, he's arguing, is not a license to sin. It is a liberation now to serve and to submit to the leaders of this earth. And so as slaves to God, and more than that, as sons and daughters to God, we should do good and not evil, because our Master wills it. And His will is not to destroy the evil and the ignorant, but to bring them to Himself. And He aims to do that primarily through our radical love and our willful submission. So we should follow the laws of the land. We should will and want the good of our leaders. We should respect our parents and our boss. And we should follow company and school policies so long as they do not disobey the word of God. And by our good conduct, we'll reveal the goodness of God to a world that has yet to taste and see it for themselves. And hopefully they will through that. Which brings us to our last point, which is that we are free to suffer well. Free to suffer well. But first, some water. All right, free to suffer well. This comes from verse 18. If you're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Peter's again commanding his readers with this command to be subject. Only this time he's aiming it at Christian slaves relating to their masters instead of citizens relating to their leaders. And it's important that Peter uses the same word in the Greek here in verse 13 that he uses in verse 18. Because what he's saying here is that Christian, a Christian slave is no more owned by his master than a Christian citizen is owned by his government. And that was a radical claim in the day. This is slaves he's talking to, right? They are property, essentially, in their minds here. And as Christians, it gets again at our freedom that we have in Christ. We are subjects and slaves to God alone, but then we are called to willfully submit to emperors and slave owners alike, even the evil ones. And Peter grounds this call, this call for willful submission. He grounds it in Christ's own willful submission to his own evil earthly authorities. So Peter, in this text, he mentions two functions of Jesus. The first is, he says, Jesus is our substitute. Right? So Jesus stood in our place on the cross. He died both for us and he died as us to bring us to God. That's what Peter says in verse 25. The second function of Jesus in our text is that Christ is our example. So he shows us how to endure suffering as those who willingly submit, subject themselves to human authority, especially evil human authority. And we must hold both of these functions, Christ as substitute and Christ as example, we must, must hold both of these up simultaneously. To separate one from the other is to fall into a false gospel. So to call Christ only our example would be essentially to throw away the deity of Christ and say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher and if we can just kind of follow His example, we can in essence save ourselves. It's the gospel of good behavior. And it is very popular. It may not be stated, but it is practiced a lot in the South. We love us some gospel of good behavior, some Southern hospitality Jesus, right? On the other hand, to say that Christ is only our substitute would be to say that since Christ's work on the cross is sufficient, which it is, but the rationale would be to say since His work on the cross is sufficient, then it doesn't really matter how I live. And the problem with this idea is that it separates the work of Christ on the cross from the work of God in our lives. It acknowledges the love of God uh, without acknowledging the justice of God. And it holds up the hope of heaven while suppressing the reality of hell. And so we must, like Peter, acknowledge Jesus both as our substitute and our example. We must, like Paul, say that I have been saved by grace and grace alone, and at the very same time, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, it was the grace of God working within me. And Peter teaches on both of these realities in our text. We see this in verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. So there's the substitution piece. Christ suffered for us. He goes on to say that He left us an example. So there's the example piece. So that we might follow in His steps. Let's look at these one at a time as we close. So first, Christ as our substitute. Peter said in verse 21, Christ suffered for us, but he doesn't really kind of parse out the substitution piece until we get to verse 24. And he quotes this from Isaiah 53. This is a passage commonly called to and referred to as the suffering servant. And it's titled that because Isaiah is prophesying about what Christ will do for us and who Christ will be for us. And so Christ does not, on his initial entrance into this world, come as a king. He doesn't put on a crown, he doesn't sit on a throne. At least not yet. That is coming. As Matthew said, that's what everything is moving toward. There's one track in this universe, and the train is going in that direction. But instead, Jesus came as a servant. 
He washed the feet of tax collectors and fishermen, and he sat with sinners and prostitutes and ate with them. He served mankind in this way all the way to the cross of Calvary where he embodied our sin and he bore God's wrath. And by faith, he removes our sin legally and he restores us to God relationally. Peter's summary word picture for this entire exchange is found in verse 25 when he says, We were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And our good shepherd Jesus is the one who has brought us back. To say it simply, Christ has welcomed us home. This was Jesus' work as our substitute. Now let's look at our example. Looking at verse 21 again, Peter says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And here's the example Jesus set for us. This is Peter paraphrasing from Isaiah 53, which is why it was read earlier. Peter says, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So listen here. Christ suffered for us, but He did not suffer so that we will not have to. I have heard pastors say that Jesus suffered so you don't have to. That is partially true. If you were a Christian, Jesus suffered so you don't have to suffer eternally. The wrath of God was exhausted on Him. But on this side of heaven, Jesus did not suffer so you don't have to. He suffered to show us how to suffer well. And He suffered unjustly. His hearing was rigged, his trial was a sham, but rather than fight the forces of evil that opposed him or blow up about it on social media, Jesus absorbed all of the evil done to him, and in the face of the most extreme forms of human hate imaginable, he turned the other cheek and he chose to forgive his enemies. And forgiveness in that moment for Jesus, it was a choice. Please do not think that this is just the Son of God on autopilot. I have only one option, and it's forgiveness. This was a choice for Jesus Christ. Jesus chose submission. He chose forgiveness. He chose the cross. And as 21st century disciples of Jesus, Christ calls us to carry our cross as well and to willingly submit ourselves to both good and evil authorities. That's Peter's argument in verses 18-20. through 20. He says, it's a gracious thing... When mindful of God, our Master, one endures uh, suffering or sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? This is his argument. When you, if you sin and you're beaten, uh, that you are. Sorry, guys, I completely lost my place. Kind of a word salad there. He says this. He says it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures so, uh, sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Right? If you do evil and you suffer, it's not called suffering. It's called consequence. I'm trying to get that in my kid's head every single day. You do this, this is consequence. Action, consequence. Daddy's not mean. You did this to yourself, right? That's Peter's argument, essentially, to these like grown-up you know, three-year-olds. <laughs> Consequences. But, he says, if you do good and you suffer, and you endure suffering as our Lord did, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God, meaning it pleases God because it bears witness to a power-hungry world that you are living for a different world entirely. One where success is not based on power or pleasure, but on piety and Christ-likeness. Now here's the million-dollar question. How do we do this? How do we not return evil for evil when we are cut off in traffic or when we're passed over for a promotion or somebody else gets a spot on the team that we rightly deserved. How do we endure suffering in the face of our mostly average everyday lives? 
And again, we look to Jesus as our example. How did Jesus do it? Peter tells us in verse 23. He says that Jesus endured suffering because he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is saying here that the key to suffering well as a Christian is trusting in the sovereignty of God. If God is small in your mind, if he is aloof, if he's preoccupied, if he's on his phone with with half of his mind and he's kind of sort of half-heartedly paying attention to you as long as you don't run in the street with the other, you will not endure suffering well because you will think you are the only person concerned with you. You are the only one who can take care of yourself. But if God is big in your mind, which is why we sing these songs, it's why we come in and gather with the body to grow the expanse of our understanding of who God is, how big He is, how good He is, how loving and merciful and forgiving He is, how fiercely holy He is. If that is God in your mind, if He's the God that the, God, uh, the, God that the Scriptures portray Him to be, if He looks down on your helpless estate like He looked down on Israel as they were oppressed in Egypt, if He visits you as He did teenage shepherds outside of a forgotten Palestinian town, and if He sees you as He sees His one and only begotten, as His beloved, then you can suffer well because you can entrust justice to a God who cannot act otherwise. To do so would go against His unchanging nature. And if you ever doubt the goodness and justice of God, all you have to do is look to the cross. The cross is an everlasting anthem screaming of God's mercy and grace towards sinners. And at the very same time, it screams God's wrath and justice towards sin that defames His holiness. So how do we suffer well? We do it just like Jesus did. We continually entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly. And this will be a conscious and continual choice on our part. Especially if the suffering is severe and especially if it is unjust. It will require actively turning to God and intentionally submitting your will to His. It's Jesus' prayer in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And so if submission is hard for you, that's okay. I would say it's normal. If it's easy for you, that's a little weird. You're scary, right? But take heart. It took an intentional effort by the Son of God to submit. I would say you might need a little bit more than that. But this is what we're called to because this is who we are. We're the children of God. We're the people of God. We're sons and daughters of God. And we are the freest people in the world. And we're called to use that freedom to love our family, to fear God, to serve others, and to suffer well. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard text and a hard teaching. We ask, Lord, that you would infuse our body now, each man and each woman, Lord, with power from on high to submit and suffer just as our brother Jesus did. And would it all be done to your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.